This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Tia Mitchell. Today... I'm tired of folks, you know what I'm saying? Closed-minded folks, you know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and don't nobody want to hear it, but it's like, did the South got something to say? That's all I got to say. The South got something to say? We look at the AJC's new documentary chronicling the culture and politics of 50 years of hip-hop. I'm Patricia Murphy. Marjorie Taylor Greene is lashing out at fellow conservatives who voted against her motion to censure Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who made anti-Semitic comments against Israel. I'm Greg Bluestein. The U.S. House approved $14 billion in aid to Israel, but refused to bundle the money with financial support to Ukraine, setting up a big fight with the Senate. I'm Bill Nygut. It's Friday, so we'll answer your questions from the listener mailbag, and we'll choose our favorites for who's up and down this week. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Guys, the South Got Something to Say premiere last night was like the party of the year. What was your favorite part, Greg? Well, we got to rock the teal carpet in my bar mitzvah suit. So <laughs> I asked her, we took a picture with Ernie Suggs, who's one of the writers of that of the amazing documentary, and I said, oh, with a bunch of other AJC people. I said, are we cramping your style? He said, only a little bit. <laughs> so Patricia, I know you weren't able to join us, but you've been watching it on social media, watching all the posts. I've been watching the posts. Greg posted some video from inside the theater, which might have been illegal. I don't want to bust him for that, Ooh. but I know. I'm sure it's not illegal. Don't tell um, but yes, I was. I had to write the jolt this morning, so I was at home in my pajamas at 8.45. Our pageantry was practicing trombone among fifth graders, but um, I mean, what an incredible achievement. The, the, the Horn brothers, Ryan and Tyson in particular, are just some of the most talented filmmakers anywhere in the country. And for us to be able to work with them, to me, is yeah. just mind-blowing. It's and, awesome. And, yeah. and the fact that you've been able to stream the movie already, so you can I watched testify. watched it this morning, yes. So it's easy to pull it up on AJC.com. It is on AJC.com, right at the top. I streamed it this morning because I knew that we planned to talk about it on the podcast today. And every inch is... It's really so good. It's really good. Bill, you wore your Jordan 1s. One of my highlights last night was so did you. We got our pictures made with our Jordan 1s. By the way, our boss, Andrew Morris, was wearing his Air Jordans, too. His were kind of a blue uh, color. He wore those when he went up on stage. It was just such a fun uh, evening. One of the things that really thrilled me about last night was getting a chance to spend a couple minutes getting a picture made with and talking to Ryan Cameron, who is a legendary uh, radio personality in Atlanta and had a lot to do with bringing rap to the attention of people across the Southeast. That was very exciting for me. And he was highlighted in the film. Yeah, highlighted in the film. And then I had this very interesting experience where MC Shy D, who was a big rapper back in the day, turns out he was a big Channel 2 news fan. And he came over to me and said, wow, Bill Nygut. <laughs> we had it. a picture made together. He actually got a Channel 2 uh, a reporter on the phone and said, you'll never guess uh, who I'm here with. And he got me talking with that reporter. Wonderful. And we closed the show, closed the movie with Pastor Troy on mm -hmm. stage yeah. doing a little bit of a, you know, sing along with the crowd. So it was a great night. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Guys, I have one message for you. The South got something to say. Rapper Andre 3000 uttered these infamous words at the Source Awards in 1995 amid a room of booing, we should add. And now we can associate that phrase with an exciting new documentary from the AJC. Greg, Bill, and I were there at the premiere last night. Patricia, I know you weren't able to make it. But let's start with you, Bill. What is one thing you took from the movie, particularly the many points in the movie that touched on the influence of hip-hop on politics and the influence of politics on hip-hop? Yeah, I, I, I thank you for setting it up that way, uh, Tia. First of all, one of the things about the movie is it showcased just what extraordinary artists so many of the rappers who came out of Atlanta really have been and continue to be. Um, I also understand that there are people probably in our listening audience that have never been big fans of rap. And so I think for them particularly, um, understanding when uh, the former mayor of Atlanta, Kasim Reed, talked about the partnership he created with Tyler Perry when Tyler Perry was trying to buy the old Fort uh, McPherson uh, uh, to build his studio, the, the mayor did it. And they created an extraordinary economic engine, one of the largest studios at the time in Metro Atlanta. We now know that Georgia... Atlanta particularly has become a mecca for the industry. And so I, I, more than anything else, I came away thinking about this as um, not just artistry, but extraordinary economic development in many, many ways. Greg, what jumped out at you? It's, yeah, well, first, I learned a lot. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a great documentary. It was so cool being in uh, in the theater with so many people who played such an instrumental role, who were hip hop pioneers, who were actually there um, to, in, in, in live in, in the audience to cheer on the movie. But one of the most compelling of many compelling moments to me in the documentary was Senator Raphael Warnock, who talked about how hip hop artists are speaking their truths and connecting to their communities in a way that, that he as a politician or, and as a reverend wouldn't necessarily do, but they're speaking their truths and, you know, it, it talked about, he talked about how what these rappers and hip hop artists are saying uh, are, are often truths that get ignored or overlooked by politicians. And of course, what is the backbone of the Democratic electorate here in Georgia? It's black voters, particularly young black voters who politicians are always trying to reach out to. And so you mentioned Warnock. Actually, right before the movie, we started the evening with some words from Senator Warnock, and he talked about rappers, again, being the urban griots um, who have helped root a lot of the political discussions. Let's hear some of what he said. I grew up in the aftermath of the Civil Rights Movement, and hip-hop has been part of the soundtrack of our very lives. And rappers, much like preachers, tell our story. They are urban griots. 
And sometimes they have to speak to a harsh reality. Sometimes they use some harsh words to tell that truth. It's piercing to the ear, but in ways that call all of us to consciousness. I love piercing to the ear. Patricia, you know, you've covered many campaign trails, especially with Democrats. We see them pulling out the rappers and entertainers. How can artists reach people in a way that candidates can't? Well, you know, obviously they're speaking directly to people when it's not a campaign season and they're not just speaking to people. They are of the people. And I think the biggest takeaway I had from this movie as somebody who grew up here in Atlanta while a lot of this was going on, uh, but very separated from it was for people to say, how did it, how did all this happen? Why is it Atlanta? Why Atlanta? Why is Atlanta such the epicenter now of rap and hip hop? It shows immediately in that first frame that so much of rap and hip hop right now, it Atlanta's not just the backdrop, it's really the fabric. And you can hear the struggles of Atlantans. You can hear their triumphs, triumphs of Atlantans in rap and hip hop today. It's become this really flourishing piece of the culture here in Atlanta, but it's not a piece of the culture. It is the culture and it's created by Atlantans and everything that they've gone through. And I think immediately of the moment that Mike Rinder came out at the request of Keisha Lance Bottoms when Atlanta was just going through such a terrible time following um, as all of those civil rights protests were going on and Atlanta had fires in the city and it felt like it could get completely out of control. And Mike Rinder went to the microphone and I think made a stronger statement even than the mayor to say this is not who Atlanta is and he knows that because he is Atlanta and I want to get to that but Bill you wanted to jump in well I think what Patricia makes an important point about the intersection of rap and politics in that case when there was literally rioting in the streets of Atlanta in the aftermath of the Floyd murder George Floyd murder uh, it was Killer Mike as the documentary points out who was one of the rappers who Mayor Bottoms encouraged to come down and speak her his truth uh, to try to calm people down. She says in the picture, I knew they weren't going to listen to me, but they did listen to Killer Mike, she's convinced. And I think we have sound of some of yeah. that. So let's listen. This, again, is from May 2020, when the height of the protests in Atlanta, former Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms said she called a lot of people, but who responded was T.I. and a reluctant, according to his recollections in the movie, yeah. a reluctant Killer Mike. Let's listen. I'm duty-bound to be here to simply say that it is your duty not to burn your own house down for anger with an enemy. It is your duty to fortify your own house so that you may be a house of refuge. So, Greg, I we were talking before the show this was the part of the movie that I kind of had the most thoughts about because I remember in real time, I was up in D.C. watching things unfold in Atlanta. And there were people who didn't want to hear that message from the mayor or yeah. for, from Killer Mike or T.I. They wanted to express <clears throat> their rage. And so what are your takeaways um, from when you hear that and when you hear bottoms and killer Mike in the movie explaining what was going on. Yeah. And I covered that moment for the AJC. It was such a combustible time. There was protest around that time, but this was the protest 
that there was cars being burned outside CNN's headquarters. There was, uh, there was already some uh, more violent elements to it. There was looting of stores in, around downtown Atlanta, and there was a worry <clears throat> that this could get worse. And so, as you mentioned, Mayor Bottoms said, hey, th- these guys, you know, some of these protesters aren't listening to me. Maybe they'll listen to hip-hop artists like T.I., <clears throat> like, like, uh, like Keller Mike, Michael Render. Um, and in Michael Render's recollection of all this, yeah, as you mentioned, he didn't want, he was hanging out with his friends. He didn't necessarily want to go and speak, but the the message that he and, and T.I. and others said was, look, you can go fight the systemic racism. You can go fight the criminal justice system, but this is not the way to do it by burning cars, by looting buildings, by, by targeting, in many cases, Black-owned businesses in downtown Atlanta. So I want to pivot a little bit to another moment that I think is going to create a lot of conversation. And that's when they got into uh, the use of rap. They talked a lot about culture surrounding the music. And then they talked about the prosecution of rappers, particularly using their own lyrics against them, which we know is a, uh, an aspect of Bonnie Willis's Rico charges against the YSL Mm -hmm. crew of rappers. So Bill, when she they played the clip of her saying, if you put it in your lyrics, I'm going to use it against you in the court of law, paraphrasing her. And there were boos. What did you think? Well, we know that this is part of a much larger controversy that, that really is going on across the country. But here in, in Atlanta, it's particularly resonant because of, as you say, the uh, young slug, uh, young uh, uh, slime yeah, life. Mm-hmm or YSL trial going on, there have been many critics out there who have said that rappers uh, uh, cannot be held accountable for their artistry, that you wouldn't do that in any other form by any other uh, kind of artists in their writings, in their music, in whatever. Now, Fonnie Willis, of course, who got booed last night, um, has other evidence beyond lyrics to rap music. And and so I think we're going to have to watch and see how all that unfolds. But yes, I think many people in that audience last night uh, don't like the fact that she's willing to use lyrics against those people. And Patricia, I would note in the movie, there were, what, five mayors, Mayor Jackson, mm-hmm. Andre, I mean, Andrew mm-hmm. Young, Kasim Reed, Andre Dickens, and Keisha Lance Bottoms, But Killer Mike said he's the mayor of Atlanta, which I thought was interesting. But Patricia, I wanted to ask, the war on drugs was another one where it's trap music, trap rap reflecting in the streets. But these are also concerns about glorifying crime, quite frankly, in rap music. Yes, exactly. And... Uh, speaking of using people's words against them, um, that became kind of a slogan in the um, 80s and 90s during the war on drugs. Uh, that uh, why are you glorifying all of this? Why is this happening? Um, why can't uh, people not be putting this to music by stars who are idolized by young people um, in culture. And so it certainly was something that uh, when you hear politicians talking about ways to uh, stop violence, um, even today they'll say, well, you have to address rap music. You have to go after video games. Um, And those are areas that artists say is just simply inappropriate. And for rap artists in particular, they're saying, this is our world. This is our lives. These are the neighborhoods that you have left. And this is 
this is how we feel about the world we're living in now. And we need to get U.S. Rep. Hank Johnson actually has introduced legislation, the Restoring Artistic Protection Act, also known as the RAP Act, to make it illegal to use rappers' lyrics against them in federal cases. The bill hasn't gone anywhere, but it's one of the issues he's been big on in coordination with the music industry. Greg, you want to say? Yeah, and Tia, when we talk about hip-hop in Atlanta, there is an intersection with politics often, right? We've seen uh, Democrats particularly, of course. Stacey Abrams had uh, rap hip-hop stars out with her trying to energize uh, young black voters. But it's really interesting because Republicans— also over the years, I've seen Nathan Deal campaign with Ludacris. A killer Mike, of course, has this sort of warm relationship with Governor Brian Kemp that has really upset many Democrats here in Georgia. And, and I'm talking about Democrat now, Jim Martin. This is maybe the most awkward campaign event I've ever covered. <laughs> the steps of the state capitol way back in December 2008. Um, T.I. and Luda both, and I think it was Young Jeezy also. It was Luda, T.I., and Young Jeezy all urged voters to back a very awkward Democrat Jim Martin in that Senate runoff that he eventually lost to Saxby Chambliss. So we've seen hip-hop artists sort of, I don't know if you used the word exploited, but leveraged. Called on. Called upon. Democrats love for Young Jeezy to show up and perform My President is Black whenever Obama's in town. <laughs> so um, we're going to... There's no doubt that hip hop will continue chronicling the politics of not just Atlanta, not just Georgia, the South, all of America. The documentary is available to stream now. And we really want to say congratulations to our AJC team, the Horn Brothers in particular, Ernie Suggs, DeAsia Page. So um, congrats to them on the, the movie. We're going to get to a quick break. When we come back, Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene is turning her anger onto fellow House Republicans. We'll explain why, plus the House vote to aid for aid to Israel, but not for Ukraine. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you are a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. So Marjorie Taylor Greene's motion to censure Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib uh, for alleged anti-Semitic remarks was um, tabled. And it was tabled in part because 23 Republicans voted with Democrats to table the measure, which kind of basically kills kills her resolution. And Green was not happy with her fellow Republicans. Patricia, um, tell us more about 
your interpretation of why Green decided to go after Tlaib in the first place? So there was a protest, a pro-Palestine protest inside a House office building, not not in Congress, but inside a House office building. And more than 300 people were arrested during that protest for, I think, the level of uh, volume they were making. They were not letting people get uh, through the exits. Green, in turn, called that an insurrection, said that uh, Rashida Tlaib, who is a Palestinian-American and obviously uh, was a part of uh, speaking out against actions by Israel, said that she basically ginned up the, quote, insurrection. Uh, I think also has a lot to do with the fact that she has been very adamant about um, defending people who were involved in the actual insurrection in uh, on January 6th. She has spoken out on behalf of uh, people who have been jailed following January 6th. She said that she was uh, completely against January 6th, but that the way that those people who were um, a part of the insurrection are being treated is inappropriate. So to me, it seems like a way to um, equate uh, what happened in the Cannon office building with what happened on January 6th, which is, uh, of course, one has nothing to do with the other. uh, But I think it's a way for her to make January 6th um, look like it was on the same level as this. And that is just completely not the case. So let's listen to a little bit. This is Green, um, the Rome Republican on the House floor last week talking about her resolution. A resolution censuring Representative Rashida Tlaib for anti-Semitic activity, sympathizing with terrorist organizations, and leading an insurrection at the United States Capitol complex. So, Greg, you know, we had in the jolt yesterday, of the 23 Republicans who voted with Democrats to table the censure measure, two of them were from Georgia. We had Representative Austin Scott and also Representative Rich McCormick. Now, Rich McCormick basically said it was inaccurate to accuse Tlaib of inciting an insurrection. Yeah, he said that it was First Amendment protected speech. And as you as you know better than anyone, Austin Scott and, and to a degree Rich McCormick aren't necessarily uh, key allies of Marjorie Taylor Greene. They're not best buddies up there. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, though, is not afraid to go after her fellow Republican colleagues. She sent a 11 tweet tweet storm, I guess you can still call it, um, that day. Uh, and this, it led with conservatives on this list hide behind excuses with their white wigs and on and they quote the constitution. So she is basically continuing. I wouldn't even say declaring a war, but continuing a war with Republicans. She deems as too moderate, too squishy. I I don't want to jump ahead of our agenda, but I will give a little preview. It is ironic that Marjorie Taylor Greene believed that she should censor Tlaib for her anti-Israeli being part of that demonstration and then decide to vote against the funding for uh, Israel as it fights its war against Hamas. But I know we're going to get to that in a little while. So let me uh, instead, I I thought that you all uh, uh, captured in the jolt really interesting comments from uh, Austin Scott and Rich McCormick. Uh, Austin Scott, who says he denounces acts of terrorism around the world. He supports Israel as they defend themselves against Hamas. He condemned uh, Representative Tlaib's remarks 
But he said the First Amendment and the Constitution applies to all Americans, whether we like what they say or not. Tia, I actually have a question for you because you cover this delegation and you see Marjorie Taylor Greene quite a bit. You are around um, all of the House members really, really consistently. What do you think something like this does to the Republican piece of the Georgia delegation. We used to see the Georgia delegation march in such complete lockstep. They called themselves the G8 when there were just eight members of the of the Republican team. Now there are nine. But when she takes these kinds of direct hits against her own Georgia Republicans, I wonder what that does to that group of people. Right. I definitely don't think it's helpful, especially because it's not just, you know, her saying, I don't like the way they voted. She's putting their names on her social media. We know yes. she has a large following. She's encouraging people who support her to reach out to them, to express their uh, their disdain, their disapproval of this vote. She calls them pathetic. Um, and so it. I don't think it, it, it was a great spot for her to put any of the 23, but the fact that there are two fellow Georgians, I did ask, you know, to try to get more reaction from Scott and McCormick's office, not just about why they voted the way they voted, but the reaction to being attacked so directly by Marjorie Taylor Greene. But they tend to not want to engage. I think they don't want to fight with her, but sometimes she brings the fight to them and then they just have to take it. But I don't think any members of Georgia's delegation on the Republican side want to actively be in a fight with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, we saw that in the 2022 midterms, right? Even when Marjorie Taylor Greene was taking shots at fellow Republicans, um, you know, they did not want to take shots back at her. They didn't want to risk opening a, a full-scale sort of Twitter feud with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And certainly they didn't want to risk alienating her supporters in that pro-MAGA pro-Donald Trump wing of the party when every vote counts. I think that's a really important thing to add to your comments, Greg, that Marjorie Taylor Greene gets away with some of this, partly because she is so quick to lash out at anyone who she thinks in any way is critical of her or doesn't go along with uh, what she says, uh, which makes her a lot like uh, Donald Trump, who looms over her and is her ultimate protector. You do not want to mess with Marjorie Taylor Greene if you're a conservative Republican, because Donald Trump is in the background. You know, it's very reminiscent of Colton Moore, State Senator Colton Moore, who, when he disagreed with his own state senator, his fellow Republican state senators, over calling a special session, he was pushing for a special session um, to go after Fonnie Willis and Republican state senators that, no, we don't have the votes. He went after them on social media, posted their phone numbers that go out call these individual Republicans who are rhinos and they're not on your side. Um, and he is supported by Donald Trump. But unlike Colton Moore, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene has had very little pushback to that because she is so powerful on the right. Colton Moore is kind of a nobody. Uh, Governor Kemp shut him down real quick. But the same is not true for Marjorie Taylor Greene. And she is legitimately so close to Donald Trump. You just don't see lawmakers who want to go after her because you would almost going after Donald Trump. It's mm. almost a package deal. See, I go back to 2020 when Marjorie Taylor Greene was a candidate and there was such focus on 
her, you know, at the time there was a lot of focus on her, her remarks about QAnon and her provocative and, and, and xenophobic remarks um, that were getting national attention. And so few Republicans even back then were openly siding with her runoff opponent. And I remember there was also a moment when she ended up uh, endorsing Kelly Leffler and her opponent at the time, Congressman uh, or Kelly Leffler's opponent, Doug Collins, basically held back any sort of attacks on uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene because he didn't want to alienate the base. Yeah. And we're going to I want to put a quick bow on this so we can move on to that Israel money that uh, Bill mentioned. So because the censure resolution against Tlaib uh, was tabled, kind of a payback resolution to also censure Marjorie Taylor Greene. They held Democrats held their fire on that one. But that same day, the House also took a vote on whether to expel George Santos, the New York Republican from Congress. It failed. It needed two thirds. It didn't even get a simple majority. Um, Republicans voted no, but so did representatives Nakima Williams and Hank Johnson, two Georgia Democrats. They both cited um due process in that it would have been unprecedented to expel a member of Congress who had not been convicted of any crimes yet. They think he might eventually, but because he hadn't yet, they didn't want to go there. Your thoughts about that, Patricia? Yes, it's um not not in these two lawmakers case, but you see members of Congress very um, reluctant to discipline their own members in a spirit of sort of there, but for the grace of God go I, you know, if somebody is accused of something, but not yet convicted. Um, and many people are not convicted of the crimes that they've been accused of. Um, is that really fair to them and to their constituents to take permanent action and expel them from the House? I think the Republicans who feel so strongly about this, the people mostly in the New York Republican delegation, um, have seen George Santos firsthand. They have no doubt that he did what he's accused of. But other members um, really are very, very reluctant to take that kind of action because they don't want to see it used and weaponized against their own party in many cases. Exactly. I think um, particularly when you talk about civil rights leaders, there is that concern. If you go back in the Georgia House when when the majority white Democrats refused to seat Julian Bond, the civil rights leader, when he was elected Georgia House, there's a concern that, that this type of action can be weaponized against them. And they're, they're not agreeing with what George Santos stands for or saying that he's exonerated. They're worried that it, it could set a bad precedent. Well, you can go across to the other side of the building and see the same thing happening with Senator Bob Menendez, Boy. who has been accused, been accused of, of worse. unbelievably yeah. extraordinary crimes. And again, the Senate is essentially saying a due process um, must uh, move forward. I suspect, and who knows how the, these trials will proceed, but it is probably likely that George Santos and Robert Menendez will face a reckoning in the future, either from voters or from the courts. Absolutely. So, okay, let's get to this vote, which was Thursday on $14.3 billion for Israel. It did pass narrowly in the House with um, most Republicans in favor, most Democrats opposed. It was controversial in part, number one, because there's no money for Ukraine, but also because the $14.3 billion is coming from the IRS in the extra money that Democrats passed to help boost up the IRS. Greg, let's start with you. What are your thoughts about the decision Speaker Mike Johnson, his first kind of substantial controversial bill, decides to side with 
conservatives yeah. who want to offset this emergency money with funding cuts. Yeah, Democrats say he took an easy win. You know, the, there's broad bipartisan support for new military aid for for Israel at a time when it's stepping up its offensive against Hamas and Gaza Strip. There, uh, the Israeli ground invasion is well underway. They're encircling Gaza City right now, and Democratic critics say that. Speaker Johnson took an easy win in what would be, uh, you know, more support for Israel that would please the Republican base and get something through and turned it into a partisan issue that that narrowly passed, mostly along party lines. But by tying this $14 billion in military aid, as you said, spending cuts and adding no money for Ukraine, essentially dooming it from passing. This will not pass the Senate. And this sets up a new debate that will go back and forth now in Washington. So what I thought was interesting is that even though it was controversial, even though President Biden has said he would veto it, Chuck Schumer said it's not coming up in the Senate, House Republicans lined up to like champion their vote for this uh, money. Let's listen to Andrew Clyde. This is him in a floor speech on Thursday talking about the bill. This is a time to crush Hamas, eliminate their leadership and obliterate their fighters. And I am so thankful that there is no humanitarian aid here that can possibly get into the hands of Hamas. So what he's saying is that one of the things that President Biden has asked for is money for Israel, money for Ukraine, money for humanitarian aid to Gaza, money um, for other international conflicts, plus some border security money to appease far right conservatives in one big package. Uh, Instead, this is just for Israel. Bill, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I think we ought to establish the fact that this is virtually unprecedented. For a bill to fund Israel, which is uh, one of the uh, United States' greatest allies in in the world, uh, it almost always gets bipartisan, virtually unanimous support without any conditions whatsoever. And I think one of the reasons it becomes particularly controversial now is because of uh, the speakers deciding that the uh, balancing of the money had to come from uh, the uh, much of the, the new money that Congress approved under President Biden for the IRS uh, was going to have to be reduced. I don't have the exact amount in front of me. Maybe one of you does. But they're saying we can't afford to do this aid package to Israel unless we find a way to cut funds elsewhere. We'll do it to the IRS. And, of course, we know that for uh, the entire time that the Biden administration talked about uh, beefing up the IRS, Republicans complained that this was a way to go after big businesses and the like, whereas Democrats said, no, we want to get tax cheats. Uh, The Congressional Budget Office said that, in fact, when you reduce funding to the IRS, enabling them to go after uh, uh, tax cheats with the money, uh, you're, in fact, going to increase the deficit. So I think the speaker and the people who voted with him on this are getting a lot of criticism for creating conditions that do have this partisan tinge to them at a time when many people feel Israel needs support. Yeah, and you mentioned, Bill, so the, it's a dollar for dollar, 14.3 for, Is it dollar Israel, for dollar? Okay. 14.3 away from the IRS. The CBO says it would increase the national deficit by about $12 billion by limiting future tax collections. Um, I want to get to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Only two Republicans voted no. 
Marjorie Taylor Greene was one of them. Thomas Massey of Kentucky was the other one. But she doesn't agree with the Democrats. The Democrats talked about the IRS offset. They talked about not having money for Ukraine. Let's listen to why Marjorie Taylor Greene didn't want to support this money. You see, the reason why I voted no today, and not that I'll always be a no for Israel's defense, is because I'm unapologetically America first. And today in America, we have an open border driven national security crisis. So Patricia, she's basically saying for now, I don't think and she's talked about other money that has been approved but not signed into law. But she's basically saying we've got too many problems on American soil to be giving money to Israel, similar to what she's been saying about Ukraine. Yes. And Joe Biden has said that supporting Israel is America first because America is, um, you know, the first and primary ally of Israel. But it's, again, Marjorie Taylor Greene on kind of her own ideological island. That is what a lot of her constituents really appreciate about her. But it really does highlight this it's very same problem that um, Mike Johnson is going to have, as Kevin McCarthy had, is that he has this very iconoclastic majority in some cases in that individual members will stray for reasons of their own choosing. But the way he chose to do his very first bill supporting Israel, yes, but immediately politicizing it with the Democrats absolutely crown jewel of their legislation. They were so happy about passing that IRS funding um, that to go directly after the IRS funding, which was a real Biden administration priority, instead of any other $14 billion in the multi-trillion dollar um, budget was a signal to Democrats, this guy is partisan. Mm -hmm. He's willing to put politics ahead of what is even a completely unifying conversation, with the exception of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has her own reasons. Um, (laughs) But I think it also sort of put a pit in the stomach of Democrats to say, oh, here we go with this guy. Tia, it was striking to see so many politicians who say they're pro-Israel vote against this, right? Marjorie Taylor Greene, as as Trisha just mentioned, she said in her speech multiple times, she's pro-Israel, she supports Israel's right to defend itself. One of her concerns was that Joe Biden would put conditions on Israel's response and his call for a pause in the actions. And then on the Democratic side, you had so many pro-Israel Democrats who you could tell struggled with this vote because they, they, they wanted to give Israel the support. They didn't want a long, drawn-out battle. Um, but they ultimately said it was unacceptable for Congress to put those types of conditions on emergency aid for such a vaunted ally such as Israel. So, uh, go ahead, Bill. No, I, I was just going to say that when I heard Andrew Clyde's uh, um, uh, comments on the floor, which we just played, I, I found them a little bit troubling. The notion that he says, I am so thankful that there's no humanitarian aid here. Now, he does qualify that by saying that he's he's thankful because the money could fall into the hands of Hamas. And there is something to that. I mean, that is always of some concern. But as we watch, and I know, I know how complex this whole situation is, but as we watch what is happening uh, in Gaza to civilians, uh, uh, who are being killed and maimed, who need uh, medical attention. There's great support for humanitarian aid. So I find it troubling to hear Representative Clyde talk about being thankful that there's no humanitarian aid. And I think you raise a good point. I don't know if in the House, led by conservative Republicans, if humanitarian aid 
for Gaza could pass? That's a good question coming up. Also, we'll be monitoring a lot of things going on in Washington. Uh, Representative Mike Collins, the mean king, is running for vice chair of the Republican conference. But I want us to briefly talk about there is a government funding shutdown deadline (laughs) in two weeks. (laughs) Another one. Another one. So, Greg, do you think they can do something to avoid uh, government funding runs out November 17th? Yeah, we talked about how this Israeli aid is an early test of Speaker Mike Johnson's abilities to wrestle, wrangle his his caucus together. Of course, this new funding shutdown will be the big test. And, you know, he can only afford a handful, what, three or four defections from his own party because he's not going to be able to rely on, uh, uh, well, he can't do a repeat of what happened with Kevin McCarthy. I think that he's going to get through this. I don't expect there to be a shutdown because he has made it pretty well known he's willing to go through January with a temporary fix in order to sort of get their house in order. Um, and they really did jam, his own caucus jammed him a little bit on his timing because they spent so much time coming around to picking a speaker, all of which was time that was ticking down the clock toward another government shutdown. I think it will be a very short honeymoon. Pretty soon they're going to be demanding real changes to the way that the House is passing those appropriation bills. I think he'll get a little teeny tiny bit of leeway right now because I think House Republicans are cheering for him. So before we take a break, I want to keep it national, but pivot to something you just reported, Greg. Trump has a new surrogate. Marjorie Taylor Greene, we know, but Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones stumped for Trump in Iowa. He took a lightning quick trip to Iowa. On Thursday, he went to Trump's campaign headquarters in Iowa. He talked to some caucus volunteers in Iowa. We already know that that Burt Jones is a key ally of Donald Trump here in Georgia, but he had stopped short of unequivocally endorsing. And we knew he was going to end up endorsing him. Trump endorsed Burt Jones. They're very close. But to me, this all sets up a potentially... You know, we're seeing Burt Jones take take more and more steps towards aligning himself with Trump's base as he prepares for what we think could be a 2026 run for governor. I will also say there will be people who are allied with Burt Jones who will start to talk about him as a potential running mate for Donald Trump. Uh, Wait, where does that come from? I I don't think I don't know if it will go anywhere at all. I'm just saying that some of Jones's allies might start talking about that because he is the we're in a must-win state for Republicans, and he is a Trump-backed lieutenant governor of that state. Now that's breaking news. <laughs> yeah, that's sure. One of the things I'm interested in with this is, you know, we've got this growing kind of philosophical partisan battle going on between Burt Jones and Governor Kemp, which I asked off-air the other day, Patricia and Greg, since they follow the legislature so closely, whether they see that growing uh, in the next legislative session, and they both said yes. Burt Jones now going to Iowa to stake his claim to being a Trump surrogate just increases the chances that uh, the, the governor, who obviously has been increasingly critical of Donald Trump and Burt Jones, could be headed for some interesting showdowns in the next session. The reason I was surprised to see Burt Jones stumbling for Trump is because we still have that outstanding question of whether he might eventually be indicted as a um, as one of the co-conspirators in the Fulton County case. That's still TBD. That is still definitely TBD. I actually checked in on that earlier today. Haven't heard back yet, but there is no special prosecutor, as far as we know, that has been assigned to investigate that case. All right. Well, when we return... It's time to answer some questions from our listener mailbag and we'll get to 
who's up and who's down this week. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Morning Jolt newsletter. And now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. All one word and spell it out. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. Over the years of doing the Politically Georgia podcast, we learned that many of our listeners had questions about Georgia politics in the news we cover. So we set up a call-in hotline so people could ask their questions. Every Friday, we play those questions back and answer them during our listener mailbag segment. You can call the Politically Georgia hotline anytime, 24 hours a day, at 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Producer Shaney B. Hello. I know we have some great questions that have come this week, so let's go. All right, let's jump in. We'll start off with Dee Dee in Atlanta, who has a question about the anti-Semitism bill. First of all, I wanted to say I'm so excited to hear all of you back on the air. Kudos to WABE. My question is about the hate crime bill. My understanding is that some of the opposition has to do with the language in the bill that could be interpreted as any any criticism of Israel or the Israeli government and policies could be labeled as anti-Semitic. Can you provide any clarity on this? Thanks so much. Great question. This is about House Bill 30, which passed the House this year, but got wound up in the, in the, in the Senate. We're not sure it's fate for next year. Well, critics say this bill is not about combating anti-Semitism, but more about protecting Israel from public criticism. That's their worry because it pulls its definition of anti-Semitism from something called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance that they say will unfairly restrict First Amendment rights of people who want to criticize Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu or other Israeli policies. The bill's defenders, though, they say they want to protect Jewish people and not the nation of Israel amid a rising tide of anti-Semitic attacks. So a lot of this fight hinges on that definition, and supporters of the bill says that definition must stay intact within the bill for it to be effective. Do you think there's any chance in, when they try again this upcoming session that there are tweaks to that part? Yeah, we saw this past session with changes to that definition, even like a word or two. There was one change of, of a word in that definition from State Senator Ed Setzler that the bill sponsor, uh, Representative Esther Panage, said would basically sap that, uh, that bill of any sort of meaningful impact. I think one of the other interesting things we're going to watch uh, in this upcoming session, we've talked about it on the show already, is whether legislators, uh, any of the legislators are going to try to introduce measures much like what Governor DeSantis passed in Florida. One of them that uh, would uh, 
be aimed at stopping the leaflets that are dropped on suburban lawns, anti-Semitic leaflets. Um, Florida uh, uh, voted for a measure that called that sort of thing. They didn't want to allow littering. It would forbid littering on private property um, as one example of their attempt to overcome that. And Patricia, there was another measure they passed down there, and I can't for the life of me or Greg remember what it was. You, you're talking about the laser projected one? Yes. 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 You, you can't project images that express hate on a private property without the permission. Exactly. Like the one the we owner. saw on I-75 yes. recently. Yeah. Although yeah. that was public property. So, yes, that is public but property. But we've certainly seen on campuses and, in, and in buildings. We saw it at the University yeah. of Florida-Georgia game well, last year with those laser-projected So images. the question is whether somebody will introduce that kind of legislation in Georgia this upcoming session. Well, I have a column about just that for this Sunday. Oh, right. good. Thank you. We <laughs> look forward to it. Thanks for the plug, Bill. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, Shane, what's next? Next up is a call we got this morning from Deborah in Athens. She's asking about uh, the lieutenant governor's trip to Iowa. I'd like to know who paid for Burt Jones' trip, recent trip to Iowa, where he just happened to stump for Donald Trump and offer some training on an election process not used here in Georgia. Thank you. Well, we can't answer that question immediately because the trip happened about 48 hours ago. So we don't have the disclosure reports on that. I can say that of all uh, lawmakers in Georgia, Burt Jones may be um, uh, one of the wealthier. He has uh, quite a bit of personal money. So of all lawmakers, you would not expect to um, dip into state funds to be campaigning for president. It probably would not be Burt Jones because he does just have uh, quite a bit of immense personal wealth um, thanks to his family business, which his father started. And if you're driving up I-75, you may uh, frequently see some of their family-owned gas stations. And, and sometimes we see these trips funded by the by the. The campaigns, the campaigns themselves, themselves right? Yep. It is not is not unusual for a Georgia politician uh, to go beyond Georgia's boundaries to go stump for 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 a candidate of their liking. We certainly seen that with Democrat Keisha Lance Bottoms was in Iowa, right? We've seen that over the years back in 2020. Um, but uh, we have a question out to 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 Burt Jones's office about who paid for the trip. But I suspect it's either Donald Trump's campaign or Burt himself. Yeah. All right, so keep calling in to our mailbag with those questions. Also, just a reminder for all of our listeners, today is the last day for early voting in the municipal elections. So please get out and vote for your city council and your mayors. And then election day is Tuesday. All right, guys, it's time to transition to who's up and who's down for this week. So... Love this music. It means it's Friday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Bill. Who's down for the week? Of course, you know we want to we want to end on a good note. Yeah. All right. Look, there is so much horrible news out there. There are so many bad people doing bad things in the world today. And I, frankly, in thinking about this, just didn't want to go there. So I've taken a different direction entirely. My down for the week is. Uh, the semi-annual time change that the United <laughs> States continues to insist, despite the fact that in almost every survey, eight out of 10 people say they don't want a time change ever again. Last year, the Senate actually passed a bill which would establish daylight savings time as a year-round uh, time for us. Uh, it has not gone anywhere since then. And in fact, 
many people in the medical profession and elsewhere say that daylight saving time is the wrong time to go to. The point, though, is why do we have to go through this again Saturday, Sunday morning at 2 a.m.? We don't have time to debate, but one day we will. I am team spring forward, fall back. Same. Um, Patricia, your who's down? My who's down are the state lawmakers who may need to change their legislative districts or their plans to run for election based on redistricting. We heard from State Representative Cyra Draper yesterday something I had not considered. There is a one-year residency requirement for a state lawmaker to run in the district where they live. If they change those districts in the coming months, it could go past their actual filing deadline. So they may or may not be able to run in those districts. See, for my who's down, I'm going to take a point of personal privilege in a minute a bit. It's not necessarily who's down, but I want to recognize the death of the great AJC columnist mm. Jim Wooten this yes. week. He showed me nothing but kindness early in my career. And WABE Political Breakfast host Brian Robinson might have put it best in an online remembrance where he said Jim argued with decency and dignity. I'm quoting Brian here. Jim saw America as a place where a kid who grew up in poverty, and as he did, could achieve the American dream as he did. He loved our country in word, but also in deed. Well, I'm going to put it on a little bit of a lighter note. My who's down is all the Atlanta restaurants who go out vibes. <laughs> and not good customer service and food because yes. Keith Lee came to town and exposed them all. And if you're not familiar with Keith Lee, go to AJC.com. Or quite frankly, there were nas- there was national coverage of the havoc raised by Keith Lee, the restaurant reviewer on TikTok. All right, who's up? Patricia, who's up? My who's up is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. You would not expect this. However... The head of the Goyam Defense League has been convicted in Florida for littering, for putting those anti-Semitic flyers on um, Floridians, Georgians, everybody else's lawns. It's happening all over the country. Um, He was convicted in a Florida court going to jail for 30 days, uh, convicted this week. So that littering bill is having its effect. Great. TMI Who's Up is the easiest Who's Up I've ever had. It's my daughter, Nicole, who is celebrating her bat mitzvah <laughs> tomorrow. She is so ready and so excited. And my wife, Cheryl, who has a far more demanding job than I do in healthcare, and she has spent so much time and effort putting together everything this weekend. So they are my Who's Ups. Well, that's a big deal. It's like, a big deal. Y'all have been working hard on this. They have been working hard on <laughs> You too. You had a photo shoot. Okay. Um, Bill. Mazel tov first to the Bluestein family yeah. for a very, very big occasion this weekend. Um, my up, well, I, I do want to say one thing and then I'll pick a person. We don't want to finish without saying we have just come through our first week of the live Politically Georgia radio we show. We did it. Here on WABE. And it's been such a thrill to be here. Our team, Natalie Mendenhall, Shaney B., our folks from WABE, Matt, our engineer, Rich, who helped get us going. It's been thrilling. So in a way, that's my up, but I want to take it one step further. I really want to give kudos to Mayor Dickens this week. He set a really uh, difficult goal. He said that he would build 20,000 affordable housing units during his first term as mayor. And we learned this week that 3,000 are already set to go with another 1,500 in the pipeline. That's still far short of his goal, but it is really extraordinary. He's making such progress on such a meaningful goal. Did I get all you guys for who's up? Do you have a who's up? I do. 
I was going to go with the constituents in West Cobb who are excited now <laughs> that Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> might be, you know, they might get a new congresswoman. Uh, Maya Prabhu just posted an article this morning talking to some of those folks in Cobb County about redistricting and, um, and how, how happy they are that they might get a new member of Congress. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around 1 p.m. every day. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Monday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.